Chapter Six of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six The Older Theories of Insanity. The concluding words of the last chapter Oh, how can any fold the hands to rest and say to the spirit, take thine ease for all is well, proved prophetic. Before very long were her compassionate heart and dauntless will to be brought face to face with an abyss of human misery in the condition of the helpless and outcast insane throughout the land, so appalling in the scenes it opened up that from that day forward till extreme old age had left her helpless, there was to be for her no more folding the hands. Take thine ease, for all is well. Nay, much is most hideous, a scandal to self-called Christianity, a heartbreak to anyone with a trace of pity. Such was henceforth the haunting cry of reality ceaselessly sounding in her ears with its demand, Woe, woe, if thou dost not champion these outcast and miserable ones. Never was a redeeming work entered on with a clearer, devouter belief in a direct call from on high or a more unhesitating answer, here am I, send me. Great characters never appear isolated from all sympathetic surroundings. They are more than extraordinarily forceful individualities. They are individualities lifted on the crest of some great tidal wave of humanity. Did they come forward as simple innovators, their work would soon be brought to naught for lack of historic backing. It is to their high degree of receptibility, to their sympathetic power of forecasting and co-working with forces then in the air, that they owe their power of achieving such seemingly miraculous results. All important is it, therefore, before specifically entering on the narrative of the life work in behalf of the insane to which Dorothea L. Dix now made haste to dedicate herself with the self-sacrifice of a martyr and the religious fervor of a saint, to review as briefly as possible, while yet with needful fullness and circumstantiality, the exact state of things prevailing in New England fifty years ago. Thus only can the reader grasp a clear conception alike of the point of departure and of the goal toward which everything must be made to tend. It is a review which must necessarily embrace the previous condition of theological thought and feeling in New England, together with the strange but very practical bearing of this thought, as well as on the administration of penal law as on the theory and treatment of a certain type of mysterious and awful disease. 
such review must further seek to contrast with all this the growing influence of a new and different order of ideas, finally gathering head and making themselves felt with revolutionary power. In all her rationality, in all her enthusiasm of humanity, in all her glowing faith in the birth of a new epoch in human history, Miss Dix was the incarnation of the sanguine and prophetic spirit of her time. Throughout the whole earlier epoch of New England history, the two grand forces which had wrought together for the education of the people had been politics and religion. The necessity of laying the foundation of the state in what had been a previous wilderness, and of fostering its steady progress toward maturity, had demanded a constant exercise of practical sagacity and devoted patriotism. And yet all this so needful work had been regarded but as temporal and material in its nature and as strictly subsidiary to something higher. In comparison with the overwhelming realities of the supernatural world, the claims of the present world were to be weighed but as dust in the balance, to maintain in the minds of the community a high-wrought and imaginatively vivid sense of this eternal distinction had been the unremitting aim of the powerful theological system of Calvinism that dominated the great majority of the people, a system, moreover, whose dogmas had been enforced by a class of preachers of commanding intellectual power and rare elevation of character. Here, then, was an iron-linked system of theological thought, which embodied elements in it fitted to produce, as it did produce, many and noble spiritual results. In its favor must it be said that it had disciplined the mind to close reasoning on the profoundest subjects. It had put energy into the will. It had led to the scorn of sloth and ease, and had substituted for those the stern sense of duty. It had developed, moreover, in a select class of finely tempered souls, a rapt and mystic piety. But along with these great advantages, it had nonetheless always carried in its breast other elements, whose inevitable tendency was to narrow, harden, and well-nigh annihilate the tenderer and more compassionate qualities of human nature." So vastly more frequently and incisively had the righteous wrath of God been emphasized than his redeeming love, that, logically enough, the majority of men and women had been led to cultivate and morally approve in themselves the same inverted relation between these two attributes which they worshipped in their deity." Inevitably, then, were the penal statutes of such communities inexorably severe. The prisoner, an outcast from the heart of God, became equally an outcast from the heart of society. 
The little he might be called on to suffer in the jail from moldy bread and filthy water, from foul air and swarming vermin, seemed so as nothing in comparison with the awful fate awaiting him in eternity, as scarcely to be worthy of consideration. Nor was it practically different with the view taken of the condition of the actually insane. Nay, in certain respects it was worse. The terrible superstitions of the Middle Ages, which had always sought the explanation of insanity and the idea of diabolic possession, and had seen in its frenzies of imprecation, filthiness, and blasphemy simply the masterpiece of Satan, still hung like a lurid cloud over the human mind. Slowly, slowly only were the conceptions outgrown which, in the days of the Salem witchcraft, had rendered possible the spectacle of an outbreak of superstitious terror powerful enough to transport to a pitch of frenzy not merely the ignorant populace, but many of the foremost judges and divines of the land. Such crazy fancies of hysteric women as would today be treated with diet, sedatives, and change of air were in those days treated spiritually with the terrific anathemas of the church, and judiciously, or by mob law, with drowning in the river or the hangman's noose. Of course, as time went on, and enlightenment grew greater, the virulence of these middle-age superstitions steadily abated, though ever lingering in the background. Practical common sense began to make some headway. Still, the real king, who was finally to dethrone these imaginary supernatural terrors, had not yet seated himself on the throne. The old theory of insanity lingered on, because no new theory half as plausible had demonstrated its divine right of succession. Nor yet had human reason come to the full consciousness of itself through the study of those physical laws of nature whose immutable dictum is the one and only basis of authority. And so, with the gradual decadence of the power of the old theological conceptions over the imagination, there came at first another theory of insanity, which was but a partial modification of the earlier one, and which preserved many of its worst features. Insanity was pure mental and moral, not physical perversion. It was the outbreak of the animal, violent, filthy, blasphemous, and murderous elements of the fallen human soul, elements which had culpably been permitted to get the upper hand of the higher attributes. It was thus a fury of the mind, not a fury of the inflamed and congested body acting on the mind. One thing, at least, was certain of it. It turned men and women into tigers and jackals. It made it impossible to appeal to their reason, and thus put them outside the category of human beings. Iron cages, chains, clubs, 
starvation must still remain the only fit instrumentalities through which to dominate menageries of such wild beasts. Not that a certain amount of crude and barbarous medical prescription, of purgings, bleedings, and emetics, did not go along with all this. Still, the whole realm of the subtler relations between mind and body was as yet a terra incognita. And so the insane were inevitably looked upon with a strange and cruel blending of repulsion, personal fear, and despair of any methods but those of physical coercion. With the beginning, however, of the 19th century, and with steadily accumulating force as its years rolled on, a great change began to come over New England, and especially Massachusetts, a change which was rapidly to put this state in the intellectual van of her sister states of the Union. More frequent and intimate mental communication with Europe brought the minds of aspiring young men and women into contact with the literature, the art, the science, the philosophy of the older world. An intellectual ferment was thus set on, and through it what may accurately enough be entitled the Renaissance Period of New England the transition from lingering medievalism to rising modern conceptions, now showed vital signs of drawing on. The day came of fervid reformers in theology, like Channing and Emerson, in public education, like Horace Mann, in practical charity, like Dr. S. G. Howe, in the rational treatment of insanity, like Dr. Woodward of Worcester. Such, then, was the condition of things in New England during the formative period in which the mind of Miss Dix was coming to its maturity. On no one had one especial class of the ideas of the new awakening, not so much its literary and aesthetic as its religious, philanthropic, and scientific ideas taken a stronger hold than on her. She had drunk in with passionate faith Dr. Channing's fervid insistence on the presence in human nature, even under its most degraded types, of germs, at least, of endless spiritual development. But it was the characteristic of her own mind that it tended not to protracted speculation, but to immediate embodied action. Give her a seed thought, and she made haste to plant it, water it, and watch it grow, flower and fruit. Though mummy wheat, buried three thousand years in an Egyptian tomb, her first instinctive impulse was to furnish it here and now with soil and sun, and see what could be made to germinate. In other words, she delighted in positive forces, and loved to co-work with them, and see them justify themselves in practice. The harder the conditions under which they were called upon to do this, the greater the triumph. As soon, therefore, as Miss Dix's attention became directed to the pitiable condition of the insane, 
It was not mere sentimental compassion over their sufferings, deeply and tragically even as this affected her, that engrossed her mind, but the immediate constructive question, what class of positive forces, philanthropic, medical, legislative, judiciary, can be summoned into the field to cope with this awful problem? That is, she proceeded at once to master the whole question of insanity, its origin, its stages of development, its relation of body and mind, its treatment, its legal and moral rights, and to put herself abreast with the most advanced thought on the subject. Here was the shriveled and desiccated mummy wheat of humanity, which, as soon as she encountered it, she yearned to see it raised in resurrection from the tomb in which for ages it had been buried. What, then, it now becomes necessary to pause and ask, was the distinctive character of the new thought which, at this particular period, was kindling the humane and scientific enthusiasm of the more advanced minds of Europe and America on the whole matter of insanity. A clear understanding alone of this will serve to put the reader in possession of the inspiring creed of which Dorothea L. Dix was now to become the fervid apostle. End of chapter 6